Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Ellen McGirt. <laughs> hey, everybody. Hey, Alan. I love that intro. Thank you. I love doing it. <laughs> Who do we have today? Our guest today is the new CEO of Intel, Pat Gelsinger. He's been in that role for about four months now, but he's not new to the company. He spent the first 30 years of his career at Intel, right. which is something we'll get him to talk about later. Most recently, he was CEO of the software company VMware. And Ellen, you're the one who suggested we try and have Pat on the show. You've been following the company's diversity and inclusion work for a while now, right? That is right. And I know we rushed him a little bit. He's still brand new in the role and it's a crazy time in the world. But I, I have really been following them for a while. They've been aggressive in setting hiring and retention goals. They've achieved a lot and they've been really innovative. A few years back, they instituted something called the Warm Line, which was a confidential hotline that connects employees who have concerns about bias or that they've been overlooked or anything with trained caseworkers from their global diversity and inclusion team. And it's worked. It has really been a model to study. And now they have a new global inclusion and index alliance, which is really an interesting thing to watch. It was started by Barbara Y back in 2020 and now led by Don Jones, their chief officer of diversity and inclusion. And it is what we love. It's a radical collaboration, a coalition of companies, tech mostly, who commit to a shared set of diversity and inclusion goals and publish their progress on them. So I love that. And we wanted to hear how he felt about that, too. Yep. And we'll talk about that. And of course, uh, Intel's also in the middle of this really interesting public policy debate right. about using taxpayer money to try and subsidize the creation of semiconductor manufacturing here in the U.S. Most of it has gone overseas in recent decades, a lot of it in Asia. And I think there's increasing concern for national security reasons, supply chain reasons, a whole host of reasons that we have to do more here. But that is a fascinating dive into industrial policy that we haven't seen in this country in, in some time. So a lot to talk about. Let's go ahead and dive in. So, Pat, you've had a few months on the job there. We know that Intel has struggled a bit in the last few years. Tell us what you've found. Tell us how you've diagnosed the issues that exist there and what you're going to do about it. Yeah, what I found was, you know, I'll just say there was a number of poor decisions that were made over the last number of years. Some of the disciplines, some of the culture, you know, have led the company to, you know, mis-execution. And what I'm finding as I come back into it, I'll say there's just a rich technology, right? You know, like, you know, some of the cultural aspects, I call it, it's like a desert, right? That hasn't been watered for a while. And as soon as the first rain comes, the flowers start blooming, right? You know, it's like it comes back quickly, but also hmm, when you fall behind in key areas, it takes you a while. You know, so I think we have a couple of years to fully rebuild the execution, the leadership positions, of the uh, company, but I'm also very confident that, uh, you know, there's a heart and soul that's uh, bursting forth here pretty quickly to get back to that position of Intel's leadership. 
And what's the key change? You know, like when Satya Nadella took over Microsoft, he made that comment about we're going to change from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture. It said, oh, yeah, kind of. we kind of get that. All of us who had had to give Mm -hmm. up our Apple products before we walked into the building understood what that meant. I mean, what is your diagnosis of the problem that Intel had and that leads to a clear solution? Part of it is we're going back to being a Grovian culture as I've called it, right? You know, disciplined decision-making, blunt data, rich conversations. You know, we'll spend 30 seconds on the good, right? And 59 minutes on the problems, right? You know, just that tough, aggressive, engineering-centric culture, you know, that was the hallmark of Intel good. And I think secondly, some of our stumbles were, we had too much success. You know, we became arrogant, too much hubris, you know, so we got to you know, get rid of that and get the culture back to that paranoid survive of, you know, our competition is out to eat our lunch. And if we don't fight for it every single frickin' day, we're at risk of losing it. Right. And I'll say that hunger combined with that engineering data driven culture. And I'll say, finally, we have to make sure that it's modern. Not everything that Grove did was good. Right. You know, the world has moved on in the 30 years since then. You know, we have to be more diverse, more inclusive with a culture and environment of today that, hey, the coolest, best engineers want to do their finest work of their careers as part of my team. Well, I'll I'll tell you, though, that you come in at such a fragile time in the world and the pandemic certainly revealed the fragility of the semiconductor supply chain in kind of a powerful way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that leads us right to a conversation about some of your competitors. Yeah. And clearly, if you look at the data, I'm always a data guy. We go back 1990, the U.S. was 37% of world semiconductor manufacturing. Right. Even more startling, Europe was 44%. Today, Hmm. Europe is 9% and the U.S. is 12%. We've seen this historic shift to Asia for semiconductor manufacturing. And simultaneously with COVID, we saw an acceleration of digital infrastructure and a disruption of supply chain. So now we're at a position where we essentially have a two year gap to catching up, right? As everything goes digital, right? It all runs on semiconductors and we're two years behind. So we now have a very unbalanced supply chain, a large gap. You know, we have manufacturing lines with $30,000 cars stranded because of a $2 semiconductor, right? Politically untenable uh, situation. You know, this is not okay for the future of something that is more critical than oil, you know, for the next couple of decades, semiconductors. And in that, you know, that's where we are stepping in an aggressive way. Boy, there's a lot there for us to talk about. But I do want to ask you, because you began by making several references to the late, great Andy Grove. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a problem that Andy Grove created, didn't he? I mean, he said, we're not going to compete in commoditized chips. We're only going to do the high-end chips. And he let the commodity chips go to Asia. Well, that is and isn't true, Alan, because what happened was, you know, he, he let memories go to Asia. But he says, we are going to be the unquestioned leader of logic. Well, the reality is we let logic go to Asia too. Mm. Where does Apple and Qualcomm and NVIDIA manufacture their high-end logic chips? Asia, right? So essentially in that, there was also, I think, a little bit of arrogance and hubris on the part of Intel as well that, hey, you know, we manufacture and design all of the great chips. 
we weren't making our manufacturing available for other people's chips. So one of the immediate changes that we made to our strategy was our foundry, where I am opening up the doors, you know, come one, come all, competitors, customers, and complementers alike, the Intel fabs are now wide open for you to manufacture your chips using our leading process technology as well. And I do think, you know, we're also seeing the political environments, both U.S. government right now with the CHIP Act that uh, is progressing. And I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago, tremendous realization now on the part of the EU and several of the commissioners there, you know, that they need the equivalent of the CHIP Act. And, you know, my moonshot view would be today we're 80% Asian manufacturing, my goals would be in 10 years, it's 30% U.S., 20% Europe, 50% Asia, with strong U.S.-EU partnership and global balanced supply chain. You know, that's the world that I think we could all be very comfortable with for the future. So practically, the likelihood of a made-in-America version of some of these specialized chips, when can we look for that and what is it going to take to get there? Well, I think the CHIP Act is a great step in the right direction. It clearly is incenting manufacturing on U.S. soil. Also, R&D and design services, again, revitalizing some of those things. Second would be a strong U.S.-European partnership, as well as some of our Asian allies. Japan and Korea are good allies of the U.S. And I think you know, it really does have to be viewed from a global perspective. And some of these immediate steps with the uh, Congressional CHIP Act work and the Enduring Frontiers Act, I think, are very positive steps. And we expect that to leave Senate fairly soon and go to Congress for final appropriations. But we're quite optimistic. These are positive steps, but it's a step. You know, it's a starting point. You know, there's an aversion to industrial policy in the U.S., and something this critical, you know, we think it needs policy on the part of the government leaders. But you're not just asking for policy, you're also asking for money. So what do you say to the people who say, hey, this is just some kind of a corporate bailout and the government shouldn't be involved in this. It should be a private industry issue. You know, and I'm a free marketer, like, <laughs> you know, to the core. At the same time, our free market has seen us go from 44 and 37 percent to 12% and 9%. Korea just announced a half a trillion dollars over the next decade for their semiconductor industry. China is incenting fab builds with up to 75% of the total capital and operational requirements. You know, Taiwan is at 50%. These nations have seen the criticality of this industry. And as a result, we've seen 80% shift to Asia. You know, the facts have shown over 30 years that the lack of clear industrial policy here has led to an outcome that's precarious for our security, for our infrastructure, and for our long-term competitiveness. Ellen, if you'll allow me to follow up for a minute on the security piece of that. You go right ahead. One of the interesting complications in your life is the status of Taiwan, you know, yeah. the big manufacturer, and which China believes belongs to them by rights and history and which others believe doesn't. I mean, how much of the issue here is a lack of confidence that Taiwan-based manufacturing of chips will remain out of the grips of the Chinese government? We do believe that this is a factor. You know, it's unstable. And for something this critical, we don't believe ambiguity is okay. 
You know, and we do believe, hey, Samsung and TSMC build factories in the U.S. That's better than factories in Asia. We need a more balance to that. But we'd also say, and particularly from a national security lens, you know, this needs to be U.S. IP with U.S. manufacturing, U.S. R&D, U.S. design. You know, we, we do believe that there needs to be a balance from the uh, global ecosystem. And that's exactly what we're out to achieve uh, with these incentives and objectives that we are you know, clearly supporting. So to get more on what's happening to the semiconductor business globally, we're joined now by Eamon Barrett in Fortune's Hong Kong Bureau. Eamon, thanks for taking some time. Absolutely. It's great to be here. This has become a very big thing in the U.S. It's kind of revived conversations about industrial policy. The Congress is looking at providing money to build more semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. What's happened here? Pat Gelsinger told us that U.S. used to manufacture 37% of the world's semiconductors. Now it's gone down to 12%. Where did things go wrong? Well, I suppose... The real thing that changed was this company, TSMC, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corps, came on the scene with quite an innovation in how semiconductors were made. Previously, semiconductor designers would also make a lot of their semiconductors in-house. But TSMC recognized there is a demand in the market for a solo fab service. So that is a, a contract manufacturer that will make semiconductors on behalf of a designer. Because a, a fab, a plant for building semiconductors, is a really expensive undertaking. It involves a lot of capital investment and not all of these designers can afford that. So TSMC decided to start building fabs to then contract out production to the designers. And this revolutionized the industry really. Um, and it gave birth to a lot more American designers who are then shipping out capacity to these companies in Asia. The Taiwanese government saw this as a benefit to the local economy as well. So supported the development of the fabless industry there. And it really just took off from that point on. And so how challenging is it and how long will it take to bring that manufacturing back to the U.S.? It's pretty challenging, for sure. I mean, these fabs, as I've mentioned, cost billions of dollars to build. And then you also have to build up a manufacturing ecosystem around it. You could build a fab in the U.S., but then they have to go and get clients as well. And it might be harder to convince clients to utilize that factory if they then have to ship the chips across back to China to be assembled into whatever part they're for. So it's really a, it's a whole holistic undertaking in order to get this manufacturing back in the U.S. Interesting. And, and, and what's your sense of how well positioned Intel is to take advantage of this? I mean, TSMC is also talking about building fabs in the U.S. to take advantage of these incentives. Samsung may consider the same. Is Intel in a good position to really take back the manufacturing lead? I don't think Intel really had the manufacturing lead for a long time now. What it had was... It had a lead in, in the technology, in the process application. So it was creating some of the most advanced chips, and it's since lost that lead to TSMC. That's the lead it wants to get back. But Intel obviously creates most of its own chips in-house, and it's just now launched a service where it wants to be a contract manufacturer for other designers as well. So it's now starting to compete with the likes of TSMC in that foundry business model. That's going to be more difficult because... Its competitors are already well established in this field. They've got years of customer relations. They've proven themselves to be reliable partners. Whereas Intel has tried to launch this foundry service before as a contract manufacturer for other designers, and it fell a bit flat. They stopped doing it a few years ago and just now relaunched it. So it'll be difficult for them to get that off the ground, even with 
financial incentives. And Eamon, what's your sense of how much of this is driven by business and how much of it is really more of a political issue about U.S. and China geostrategic issues? I think it's mainly driven by politics here. Interesting. I think there's obviously real business on the line here. There's going to be real business implications. But the semiconductor industry is pretty flushed with cash. It doesn't necessarily need uh, all of these incentives to keep developing. But it's in the U.S.'s interest, certainly, to onshore more capacity, to hedge against the capacity that's mainly bottlenecked in Asia. And the funding that the U.S. is looking to put into this, it's going through a bill called the Endless Frontier Act, which is nicknamed the China Bill. So it's very obviously (laughs) a targeted incentive that we're offering there. So Hard to miss the message there. (laughs) So tell us how that China Bill, the Endless Frontier Act, is related to the CHIP Act that Pat mentioned. So as I understand it, the CHIP Act was introduced to the House last year, and it looked to earmark about $22 billion for investment in the chip industry. And that was $12 billion over 10 years of investment in R&D and $10 billion in tax breaks. Now that act, it didn't pass before Congress closed, but a very similar act was attached onto the national defense budget. And that passed. So now there's an act that's been passed, which has all these provisions in it, and they're just looking for funding. And what's happening now is going through Congress is this China bill, which could potentially free up $52 billion worth of funding for the CHIP Act. So it's a bit convoluted, but they're all connected. And it's all just about improving, boosting and onshoring US manufacturing. You know, the other thing that is driving attention to this issue right now is the shortage of semiconductors, particularly in industries like automobiles, where it's really putting a crimp on manufacturing. How much do you think the supply chain issues have to do with it? Well, I think the supply chain issues have certainly been a big incentive, a big kick to get the government working on this. And certainly the semiconductor industry has been able to latch on to the current chip shortage as a selling point for why this industry needs investment. But I think the shortage will resolve itself as companies add more capacity anyway. And it will be good to have more capacity spread globally. But I think companies were already moving to do that even without these incentives. Eamon, thanks for taking the time to walk through that with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I'm here with Joe Yukazaglu, who is CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, one of the remarkable things that has happened in the last year is the incredible acceleration of advanced technologies being used within companies, which has lots of good effects, but it's also going to widen the skills gap between those who can work in that new world and those who don't have the skills to do it. How are organizations organizations addressing this. Alan, this is going to be the defining issue of our day. When you look at the economy through a macro lens, there is tremendous optimism. The investments that companies have made in digital transformation are paying off, and as a result, the outlook is strong. But this absolutely runs the risk of exacerbating the inequities in our society. There is a gap between the skills of some of the jobs that have gone away and aren't coming back, as opposed to the necessary skills for the new jobs in the digital economy that are being created. And as a result, I believe a recognition that this is going to be a joint responsibility between business and government in public-private partnership to drive reskilling 
thinking at scale and to ensure that access to the digital economy of tomorrow is equitable. Yeah, that's really well put, Joe. Is that happening? It is. And I've seen many efforts in the past that produce great stories on a one-off basis. The key now is that the ambitions have been boldened to be able to do this at a level that actually registers at a macro level versus individual one-off examples. Thank you, Joe. Pat, do our listeners a favor, please, and tell us the this, this story of how you came to Intel as a young pre-professional young engineer from farm country, Pennsylvania, because it is a charming story. <laughs> well, thank you, Elliman. You know, I was uh, 16 years old. I accidentally took a scholarship exam that was only available for seniors. I won. I skipped my last year and a half of high school. And literally at 18 years old, I graduated with my high school degree and my two-year degree and Intel came recruiting, right? They needed technicians. So they invited me to the West Coast to interview for them. And, you know, here I am. I'm a farm kid, right? Right. <laughs> right. You know, yeah, you know, I got a hundred first cousins. You know, I knew more about cow chips than computer chips. <laughs> a good day was not getting kicked by a horse or bit by a cow, right? You know, this is, you know, life is good here. And invited to California, it took me like a, a nanosecond to say, of course, I'll take my first free trip on an airplane to California. And when Intel offered me the job, you know, promised my mom, you know, I'm not moving to the West Coast. They're crazy out there in California, right? It's going to fall in the ocean, right? <laughs> yeah, we are a conservative, homogeneous uh, farming community. But then moving to California, I started at Intel at 18 years old, did my bachelor's, master's, PhD work while working full time with the company, had the great blessing of literally knowing and working with Grove, Moore and Noyce. And in particular, Andy became a personal mentor of mine. You know, I stumbled into the design team. I started on the uh, 286 and 386 design team, literally as a technician while I'm finishing. I'm literally going to school to learn how to design chips and coming back and designing chips by by night. You know, it was really one of these spectacular experiences. Became first CTO for the company. Mm -hmm. uh, I resigned at the point I became the uh, 46 design manager. Andy comes to me and he says, uh, so you can go and learn on the simulator or you can stay here and fly the jet. And he made me the 46 design manager at 24 years old. Nobody on the team was younger than me. <laughs> I'm the youngest guy and I'm in charge. You know, it really was just one of these Cinderella kind of moments uh, for me, my career and for the uh, uh, industry. And look at you in the C-suite now. You know, I it's a wonderful story. And I ask it too, because you are, you are now the CEO of a company that has a serious charge on diversity and inclusion and creating a culture where people who are as equally as unlikely as you in any way that we describe that can have the same experience. And, and I'm wondering, how do you think about inclusion at, at Intel? And, and what do you see as your, your mandate here? The way I think about it, and you know, I tell this funny little story again, when I was uh, running the 46 design team, I had my dad visiting and uh, we're walking around the design team you know, I introduced them to Long from Vietnam, to Kit from China, to Eric from France, to Yanni from Israel and so on. And my dad leans over to me and he says, do you have any Americans that work for you? Oh, wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I says, a lot of them have their citizenship. And he says, no, son, that's not what I mean. Do you have any Americans? I was raised in the most homogeneous environment. We were all Pennsylvania, Dutch, Deutsch, you know, German heritage farmers. You know, we had one black family that moved in the neighborhood. 
they left. Right? <laughs> and, I, and I didn't realize how, I'll say, lack of diverse was my own experiences. Right. And this right. began me on a journey that I call aggressively diverse. Because if we're not proactively reaching to people that look different, act different, dress different, feel different, you know, believe different, you're not diverse, you're not inclusive. And in that sense, you know, I'm really thrilled as I've come back to Intel now, you know, and seeing the rise goals, the inclusion efforts, you know, a number of the things where they're getting recognized in the industry for their leadership, the 2030 goals we've set out, you know, hey, this is exciting to me and it's consistent with who I am, not because I started there, but who I've become in my journey as a leader in uh, Silicon Valley. Pat, that raises another question. You know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the rise of stakeholder capitalism, the notion that business does not just exist to enrich shareholders, that it has social responsibilities and commitments and diversity is one of those, but also to the community, also to the environment. And Intel, of course, ranked very high on various listings of companies that were paying attention to their social responsibility. Some people might say, well, see, that proves it. They were focused on all these social goals and the business got in trouble. And so Mm -hmm. let's get back to business and stop paying attention to the social goals. What do you say to those people? How do you deal with that? My my first job is to make sure the business is successful. And if the business ain't being successful, I can't hire people. I can't pay them well. uh, I can't be supporting the community efforts, et cetera. And I think any business leader got to remember that job one is making the business successful. But then once you're successful, everything else matters. Every other aspect of your climate footprint, of the benefits you offer to your employees, to the community outreach that you're in, you know, to these broader agendas. So I really view it as one as a precursor that enables everything else uh, in that regard. And Intel's missteps were, I believe, you know, much more hubris and arrogance, not distraction. You know, it wasn't that we were distracted with these things. And in fact, many of these things were seeping deep into the culture and they continued to do well. We continue to get recognized and I'm happy to pick up that baton now as the CEO to continue them. But I'm not confused that my first priority is getting the business back to unquestioned leadership, being healthy, being a leader in the industry. That's the highest calling that any CEO has. And when they've gotten to that role, right, that the business is performing well, that everything else matters. I've got one last question for you. You're a devout Christian and have publicly shared really many beautiful things, testimonies about your vision and your sense that for you, the workplace is a form of ministry. And I mention that specifically because of all the elements of diversity and inclusion that we talk about, and I report on, faith is the one that we talk about the least. Interfaith Uh employee resource groups are growing in number, but still pretty rare. And I was wondering if you could share what you've learned over the years about helping people of all faiths feel that they belong at work, or at least how to better have these kinds of conversations, because I think it's pretty important. Yeah, I do too. And I, you know, uh, again, a little story that uh, you know has just reinforced this. And I, I was CEO of uh, VMware, and we were having an employee resource group meeting uh, with our LGBTQ employee resource group. One of the senior leaders in that group didn't sleep for the weekend because he was concerned to coming out to his CEO because he knew I was a conservative Christian. Right, right. 
And I found out about this, right? It was just stunned that that same week we had an all company meeting and I stood on stage and I said, if I have done anything to make you uncomfortable, our team, our employees uh, being part of this because of my faith and my perspective, I apologize, right? Because I need all of you to bring all of yourself into the workplace if we're going to be as good as we believe we can be. That individual became my reverse mentor. Mm. You know, I'll say is the more inquisitive I am of other faith perspectives, of other religious views, of other views of individuals, the more inquisitive, open, winsome I am, the more I get to be clear and public about my own beliefs in that respect. So it's exactly the opposite of how we tended to treat because we said, oh, you know, we can't talk about that in the workplace. No, we want to talk about it in the workplace because for those who hold strongly to different religious perspectives, that is an important central part of who they are. And if I don't let an important central part of who you are come into the workplace, I'm not getting all of you, right? I'm getting a subset of your capacity in that environment. And, and our objective is to unleash you in the workplace. And to me, this is so powerful. Uh, and it just has created so many wonderful opportunities for me to be clear. I'm a Christian. I'm proud of it. I'm proud to be a Christian. And, oh, you're Hindu? Well, let's talk about that, right? I was having a wonderful conversation with one of my board members on Ramadan. Mm -hmm. Every one of these to me is like this open door that just gives you this ability to relate to people in ways and dimensions that just brings more of ourselves into the workplace. And to me, that's what aggressive diversity and inclusion is all apart. I want to know what you believe and what is important to you. All right, Ellen, uh, I, I want to go work at Intel. I, I, I know, I, right? I, right. We'll just leave the <laughs> podcast to you. and we'll <laughs> No, you have to take me with you, Ellen. Thank you so much for spending <laughs> Thank the Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Ellen. So good to chat with you again. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.